What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to another episode of Fed Watch. Sitting here with just Ansel, and uh, we got a we got a nice agenda of things to talk about. We have a ton of different updates, a little bit of drama, and then obviously Bitcoin price is spicy. Uh, Ansel, let's get right into it. Lots of stuff to talk about. Yeah. So okay, let's start with the drama for Powell, and it came out about twenty four hours ago now. Uh, some of Powell's financial transactions and trades were leaked. Uh, this is similar to the uh, two other governors that we covered here on FedWatch as well, Rosengren and Kaplan. They resigned back in September after a fallout of some of their trades uh, you know, were released. And uh, immediately, you know, Powell's coming up for re-election or whatever, re-confirmation as Fed chairman. And uh, immediately on Predict It, one of these you know prediction websites, his uh, odds tanked right away. Uh, and Lael Brainerd, who is the other, um, I, I'm not sure if she's a governor. I think she's a governor of one of the, the banks and uh, her chances shot up. So uh, pretty interesting. It seems like Powell is under attack. It's an attempt to smear Powell and get him out and replace him with a more maybe globalist friendly Lael Brainerd. What do you uh, think about that? Do you think that this is like a, a smear attack? Um, I mean, it feels like a lot of these uh, these disclosures are coming out very conveniently right now. And obviously there's a lot of moral hazard in general with you know all the activity that the Fed has been doing. So it's not like it, it's unwarranted stuff. It's all like real. He owned these things and they did this stuff, right? Like um, you know, we've read a couple of essays from Lael Brainerd and she's like written about CBDCs and things like that. I do know that central banks, you know, are not um, independent, um, especially the Fed. You know, the Fed is not independent. Um, and we've been seeing central banks uh, get kind of like politicized uh, and, you know, adding to their mandate to support, you know, uh, you know, policies that aren't necessarily like job or inflation related. Yeah. Um, and with the ESG stuff, the, the climate change, that's one thing that's been really being pushed uh, at maybe a Davos level, you know, a central bank uh, BIS level. And we'll talk about that a little bit later when we get into the BOJ stuff. But um, yeah, I do think it's an attempt to smear because if you look at, I mean, this stuff happens. Like I said, when we talked about those other governors, um, I thought insider trading was okay because it's okay for Congress. I thought it was okay for the Fed to do it too. Uh, we know this happens. And Powell's, the worst thing in Powell's financial transactions that we saw out of this leak was a five, roughly $5 million sale of a whole market ETF. And that, that's not like he had some insider knowledge of some company or some industry. He just had a whole market ETF that he sold on a dip. Yeah, it was on a dip. And if took in, taken as that like one week time frame, it looked like he might've had foreknowledge of this dip. But since then he sold the dip and the price is above that now. So it's not like he is making uh, great trades like a Pelosi or something like that. He is... <laughs> he's just kind of, uh, you know, actively managing his own portfolio. It kind of looks like that. So I, I think that, oh, and if you look at, so Rosengren, Kaplan, and Powell, they are on the hawkish side of the Fed. And so it seems that maybe 
they're attacking or trying to smear these hawks at the Fed to do more money printing and more uh, pumping of the, the economy. So just very interesting. Again, I feel like a lot of this stuff is coming out conveniently. I, I don't know more and I don't want to like speculate more. Um, I'm too young to even know what the precedent is, right? Like this is my first uh, financial crisis in my adulthood. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Again, uh, it seems like financial, you know, central banks are being politicized, uh, set to add ESG to their mandate. Um, and I, you know, I love the environment. I'm a big camper. I want earth to be healthy too. I don't necessarily know if that's, you know, what is going to do it. I think that that's actually just going to hurt people. Um, and again, like I said, we, we've read Baynard stuff. She aligns a lot more with, um, you know, I, I would say that her agenda aligns a lot more to something you see out of the ECB. So, um, if that's where, you know, the ethos is kind of politically pushing us, then I would not be surprised if uh, there's some moves being made in order to make that more of a reality. I mean, it sounded, I, I yeah. thought that, that, that the, the White House was supporting Powell. Um, so it sounds, it, do you think that that might change? Yeah, this is very interesting. It, it kind of touches on this, this article, this geopolitical article that I wanted to go over today, but I didn't have a chance to like prepare for that. So maybe we'll have to do that on another episode or something like that. But um, there seems to be two camps forming. You know, it used to be the U.S. kind of financial elites were uh, very much aligned with the European financial elites. But just recently, it looks like the U.S. is going their own way. And we see this uh, you know, the, what is it called? ACUS or AUKUS, this new replacement for NATO, except it's Britain, Australia, and the U.S. And that, that was when uh, the U.S. got that deal for making those subs for Australia instead of France. And that was like a wake-up call, right? And I think the, the U.S. is kind of pivoting away from Australia, or sorry, away from Europe towards the Pacific. And uh, that this could, we could see this in the central bank relationships, right? The, the, the ECB and the European type of financial people, elites, they want to keep the U.S. kind of tied to European interests. And they need to have a European-friendly Davos crowd member like uh, Lael Brainerd, where Powell is more of a like we said, he's a straight shooter. Uh, he's much more of a no-nonsense person. He's been standing in the way of the CBDC stuff from around the world. So it just seems to me like, um, yeah, that, that those are the opposing forces. And it's very, very interesting, in my opinion, what's going on there. Should we hop over to the ECB yeah. now? Let, let's talk about Europe. I know we're gonna we're going around the world on this episode. We're talking about Europe. We're talking about Japan, and we haven't really uh, talked about international um, uh, central banks in a while. So uh, let's let's hop over to Europe and uh, see you know where the incentives are there. Okay, so in Europe, the I just kind of have done a scan for headlines, and really the big headlines out of the ECB are that they're looking to change their makeup of their purchases. So, you know, how with QE is the central bank is buying securities out there in the market. And the, the ECB does it a little bit different because they are made up of member states, right? So it'd be like if the Fed could buy a bond from Florida, 
or a bond from Texas or California, but uh, that's what the ECB does. They buy bonds from different member states and they have a limit that they can't own more than one third of that member state's outstanding liabilities uh, or securities. So um, they're running up against some of these things and they can't quite, uh, like there's not enough to buy. Uh, so the, their proposal is they want to buy more EU specific intra, intranational bonds. So these are, this is debt of the European Commission in Brussels. Uh, right now they buy 10% of their bond purchases are EU bonds, um, but they want to up that in the future. And I think this is really interesting because it's a direct attack on like the, the sovereignty of these countries. So right now the German Bund uh, is really the benchmark for Europe in the bond rates and stuff. Uh, but this EU bond could you know, take that position over and make the whole financial system over there much more tied to the fate of the EU. So I thought that was really interesting. Another thing coming out of Europe is they're using the word transitory too. Just in the last couple of weeks, they've started using uh, that inflation is transitory over and over and over again. They didn't really say that much over the last couple months, but they've really it's really picked up in frequency over the last week or two. So those are my headlines. Oh, and they came out with uh, their most recent inflation, which is uh, their CPI went up at 3.2% year over year, slightly lower than the U.S.'s 5.4%, but still over their goal of 2%. So they have the same goal of 2% as the Fed. So that's that's uh, the headlines out of Europe uh, thoughts, Christian. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. You know, it sounds like between, you know, all of these major central banks that are all just committed to keeping the Ponzi going by buying their own shit. Um, the second and third order effects of that switch that you kind of outlined uh, is really interesting. And I just don't know enough to necessarily comment on it. Um, in terms of like, I, I find it very, in terms of transitory, I find it very interesting that all of these central banks are now talking about inflation and like using inflation as like a scapegoat, like, oh yeah, we printed this money because we had to. And now there's inflation that, you know, we have to eat as a nation. We're all in this together. And they're not fessing up to the fact that it's not really inflation that's hurting everyone. It's supply chain destruction and labor uh, misallocate, you know, and kind of like labor disruptions that are really what's hurting everyone. Like you look at the port of Los Angeles in the US, you look at the gas issues in Britain, you look at stuff across the globe. And it's like pretty much just like people aren't working, there's no labor uh, where it needs to be to get critical things done. And, um, you know, those are creating massive backups. And then those backups create more backups. And then those backups create more backups. And it's like this horrible, negative compounding cycle. Uh, it's deflationary too, which is something that you've been pounding the drum on both supply chain destruction and deflation. So um, it's weird that like they would rather say, oh, it's inflation and it's transitory rather than saying, oh, yeah, everything we did. I mean, maybe it's just, that's less bad than saying everything we did actually just messed up the economy way worse. And now we're going to just get punched in the face for it. Um, like that's that's kind of, you know, the choice they're making. So I do find that that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and they, they hone in on this word transitory because what they think is that yeah, the supply chain disruption will cause some price increases, but eventually that will get fixed and 
you know, prices will come back down. We'll see if that is the case, because uh, my thoughts are that there's going to be supply chain disruption, but that's going to cause fundamental restructuring of supply chains. So instead of making certain parts in certain countries, you know, supply chains are going to shorten. Yeah, they might be five or 10% more expensive, but they're much more secure from breakdown in, in times of crisis. So I think that there is going to be a fundamental shift in supply chains and Europe I mean, if the U.S. is pivoting to the Pacific and they don't really care too much about Europe, that Europe doesn't really seem to be that big of a geopolitical player. They don't even have a military, right? They can't do anything. And they're kind of the soft power of the, to the U.S.'s hard power. Uh, the soft power was supposed to be pushing this climate change initiative, I think, or uh, climate uh, regulation and stuff. But that's falling apart as well. So I think that, uh, man, it's it's not a good time to be in Europe, in my opinion. Well, you know, the this show has been uh, famously uh, bearish Europe, bearish China, and uh, bullish US. So um, I think those are very strong uh, points of your thesis. Uh, you've definitely convinced me that that's most likely the direction that things are going, uh, which I would say is kind of still an unpopular opinion in the macro sphere today. Um, but, you know, we're seeing this, you know, Antle drops all the facts here and the headlines and, you know, tracks it. And if you follow the dots, it, you know, it, it, I think it's pointing to Antle is very directly correct here. Yeah, I think Europe, uh, being bearish on Europe is much more common than being bearish on China. But yeah, I agree with you that especially taken together. I don't know anybody else that really has said that except for some geopolitical people like Peter Zion or George Friedman or something like that. Should we get into Japan? Yeah. Are you bearish Japan or how are you, are you neutral? I know uh, Japan is, is a very unique case geopolitically as well. That's a great question. I am neutral to bullish in Japan because I think that Japan will take uh will benefit from China's decline. So I think, and you know, there is, there is somewhat of a power vacuum in that part of the world because the U.S. can't be everywhere and the U.S. doesn't want to be any, everywhere anymore. So I think there is going to be a definite vacuum that, uh, of power that Japan can step into. So yeah, I'm, I'm neutral to bullish on Japan. Okay, uh, let's get into some of their headlines. So they're, man, they started QE 10 years before the United States. I think it was like eight, eight years actually before the United States, but they're ahead of where we are. And I think if you want to see where the U.S. economy will be in eight years from now, just look at Japan because they're eight years ahead of us. But um, so they're still fighting deflation, even though they have printed the most relative to their economy out of any central bank, they're still fighting deflation where the US is 5.4% year over year inflation and Europe is at 3.2%. Japan is struggling with zero. And that is amazing considering that they have quote unquote printed the most uh, amount of any central bank. Other than that, there is no real change out of Japan. They're you know, gonna continue with their same monetary policy with a few changes due to this ESG and climate change stuff that they've been adding in. So um, really no news out of Japan other than continued stagnation and deflation. 
Gotcha. Well, I guess not uh, not going down and uh, ha- having uh, being second fiddle to China these days uh, is enough to uh, make stagflation and deflation seem neutral to positive. But um, yeah, that that's your central bank update. You have a bunch of you know just comparing assets between all of the central banks uh, listed here. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of these comparisons? Any of this stuff relevant? Yeah, I'll share my screen here real quick. Okay, so this is from Yardeni Research. They put this out uh, periodically, maybe weekly, um, if not, actually this says monthly. So this is a central bank balance sheet update that they do every month. And it's very enlightening in my opinion. So we can see these. this chart here is um, major central banks total assets. And you would think the US is the largest economy in the world. They have this, you know, people cry about how much the Fed is printing and how much the Fed's balance sheet has grown. But you can see the Fed is the red line here and it's not even number one. The ECB is way higher than uh, the US. Their uh, balance sheet is actually 9.7 trillion where the Fed's is 8.4. So the US isn't even leading in that central bank category. And then I have another chart here, which is percent change. Is this it right here? Okay, so this is percent of GDP by these central banks. And so the Fed is in red again, ECB is in blue, BOJ is the big one, they're in green. And we just got done saying that there is no inflation there, they're struggling with deflation and a slowing economy, and look at their debt to, to GDP. So it's um, if, they, if things continue like this, we're gonna look more and more like Japan. So I thought those, these were interesting charts. <laughs> All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all. I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% US on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They come up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in, they leverage it up, and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoin is like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. 
Well, and I mean, the interesting thing about Japan is that like, overall people, you know, see the country and the culture and it's kind of like, it's greatness was almost like frozen in time in the eighties. Like, you know, maybe things have changed, but not really like all of that was kind of like frozen in time from the eighties and it was really great. Um, but since then, like the incentives just got all fucked up. And I know that's like a crass way to talk about it, but like, they're not having kids. They're working way too much. They're not in relationships, you know, people just all of these things. And, you know, the, the, uh, the demographics are getting really messed up out of weight. And now that's really, really straining the economy. And, you know, you can kind of point to when they started doing all this stuff. And uh, it's, it's a kind of a scary reality if we can't escape to sound money. Right. Um, And yeah, I mean, when you say we're turning into Japan, it's not a good thing. Like that means you freeze in time, you're not going to move forward and, you know, your your society becomes horrible. Yeah, uh, and Japan doesn't even have the worst demographics. Um, all, you know, most of Europe is stuck in the same boat, relative, pretty close to Japan and China is face they have the largest or the fastest shrinking population in the history of the world i mean i guess you could say like uh, uh warfare would cause it to shrink but natural uh shrinking of the population uh china is shrinking dramatically so um, all the stuff that we see happening in japan yes is going to go around the world now in this case the u.s does have good demographics and we benefit from having high immigration and this is gets a little bit political right, about immigrants coming in this country, but there are, I don't know what the exact number is, but uh, I've read 200 to 250,000 legit immigrants every year, and, you know, those legit immigrants usually are going to uh, have more babies than the, the uh, population that's here natively, so um, I don't know. I think the U.S. demographically is in a better position than these other countries. No, totally. And it's just interesting, like, there's all this fear of like over overpopulation of the planet, but yet from an economic perspective, many of the worst things that are happening to these, these populations and these nations is, uh, you know, the shrinking of population, or at least the ending or slowing of the growth. Um, it's it's uh, economically very painful. Um, so I mean, how that's going to shake out, whether things are going to change, does money have anything to do with this? Um, I think it does, but, you know, it's difficult to tell, you know, what that's going to, you know, what the effects are going to be in the short to medium term. Absolutely. Yeah. I think money has a big, uh, big part to play here, obviously, uh, maybe even the biggest. I mean, I am kind of a monetary maximalist where I think that the money, the form of money touches everything in society. Uh, it is the single most important thing in the economy and in a culture is what kind of money you have. And so, yeah, when you have a debt burden, you have credit-based money, uh, a rising debt burden and credit-based money, it's very hard for people to have a good outlook on the future. And when you don't see that your possible kids would have a better life than you because of this, the entire economy is slowing and grinding down. Every year, year after year, the economy seems to be worse. The crises seem to be worse. There's more uh, um, 
polarization in the politics. You know, you aren't, you don't have a very um, good vision of the future. And so you don't want to necessarily bring kids into that. And I think it's a psychological thing. And it all, it is all based on money and debt and that stuff. So, but I'm preaching the choir with you, Christian. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I do think that there are second and third order effects that we can't even imagine. But again, if you look back historically um, and you can just look at what has happened to those societies, what has happened to those populations, um, it's pretty easy to find some correlations where once, you know, the removal of sound money, once central bank dominance, uh, those two things kind of happening, like it had a drastic effect. Um, and I would say the fact that central banks have a mandate that allows them to control monetary policy so that way they can encourage specific behaviors pretty much says that that's the whole point is to manipulate the money so that way they can control their population's behavior. So if you have a sound money, it produces you know, natural sound behavior versus manipulate money, which is, you know, they say we are trying to do this. Like we are trying to make you work more. We are trying to make you spend more. We're trying to make you, you know, do all these things. So uh, like it's, it's actually just spelled out in our mandate, in their mandate straight up, you know, and what's the reverse of that? What, what do you mean? What's the reverse of that is Bitcoin? like, you know, what's the reverse of their mandate? Like, you know, hey, we will do these things to the money to get the population to do that. Like if you like, think about that, you know, the, the reverse of that is we will, you know, we will manipulate our our populations by printing by manipulating mm -hmm. money. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wrote uh, an article for Bitcoin magazine that just came out today as we're recording this about the interest rate fallacy and um, going into. When, when you have a deflationary pressure, right? So growth is slowing, um, money is becoming tight, and you have this deflationary pressure. Um, credit usually consolidates to the most credit worthy. And who is the most credit worthy institution in any economy is the government because they can print their own money. And so not only do you have a um, consolidation towards big businesses, big banks, and rich folks, right? And so the wealth inequality gets out of kilter when you have a deflationary environment, but also the government will grow as a portion of the economy. And so that's that's one reason why I think we see a lot of this stuff happening right now is um, the government's getting out of control because they are, you know, everything's consolidating around their creditworthiness. And it's uh, pretty interesting to watch. And it'll eventually end Obviously, uh, I think Bitcoin, uh, maybe this is a good segue to go into Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is a counterparty less asset. And so there's not as much risk as, the, or there's no risk compared to uh, other assets that you can hold on your balance sheet. They're always someone else's liability. So Bitcoin, and today with the launch of the ETF, what a great uh, opportunity to really highlight the difference of Bitcoin. Totally. And uh, I'm, I mean, so this is coming out tomorrow. So we're recording on Tuesday. Uh, what is it? The uh, 19th. Yeah, Tuesday the 19th. So this will be going out on Wednesday the 20th. But um, I thought it was going to be a sell. The ETF was going to be a sell the news moment. And so far, prices held strong. You know, it, it might be too early to tell, but 
um, 63K. I'm kind of curious, you know, what's your analysis on what we're seeing? You know, a lot of people expected the fall to bring higher prices and, you know, the meme October caught on pretty quickly. Uh, I guess I'll just pass it back to you to just talk about um, Bitcoin price a little bit and what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think the buildup to this ETF was way too fast to be a sell the news event because we just learned, like started hearing major rumors last week, right? Or was it the beginning of the last week or possibly the week before uh, with some rumors circulating about people heard somebody that's connected to the SEC say this is coming imminently. And so we heard rumors for only about a week and the price did climb, but it wasn't anything like the CME futures where, you know, we had six weeks or eight weeks of build up to that. And it came at the end of a cycle where it was obviously that the, the price had run 20 X and it was the end of a cycle. And that was the obvious sell the news event, but this just seemed to happen out of the blue. And so I, I think it's actually, it's going to turn into a buy the news event. There's so many headlines coming out about this right now. And I am extremely bull bullish. All, all signs are go on this price. Man, my DCAs just keep getting more and more expensive. And then I look back and they look cheap compared to the current price. So um, keep stacking y'all if that's how you choose to invest in Bitcoin. Uh, but it's just, it's really exciting. And uh, I mean, it's weird to be like, hey, we knew this was coming. It's weird to be like, you know, Bitcoin has these cycles. Do you still believe in like the cycles? Is there going to be a blow up top this time? Like, when does that kind of end in your mind as a, as a Bitcoin economist? Well, I've been writing about uh, on my newsletters about the cycle in, when was it? So it ended with the Corona crash. So about a year prior to the Corona crash, starting in 19, going into 20, we had this certain cycle with a certain timing. It was like uh, a double or um, a high and then a lower high and then a crash. Uh, and I timed it out from like different breakouts on different weeks and, and all that and compared it to what we just saw this year. And it, it goes down to the week. I mean, some event happens at week 45 back in uh, 2020 and something happened at week 45 in 2021. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of uncanny. Now, if that is the case, then perhaps we see shorter cycles. So instead of four years, maybe we see two-year cycles or something like that, that replay more often. But, uh, and that would make sense because the four-year cycle with the halving is losing, it loses percentage of power, right? Because yeah, you are taking off half of the new issuance, but as a total of the supply, the, the change is less and less. And so I, I do like the stock to flow model, but perhaps the four-year cycle loses prominence over to a more, maybe a two-year cycle. What does the fact that now we have public miners emerging that are pretty much not selling at all and just completely financing 100% of their operations through securities, security offerings. And, you know, right now, I don't know the exact stat, but it's definitely, you know, a, a, maybe a majority of the hash rate, a large portion of the hash rate is you know, can identify with this strategy. How does that affect the having? Like, because theoretically, you know, maybe all the, like no more sats are entering the free market now. Everything is just being hodled here on out. 
um and this is all we got and the havings don't necessarily even affect this the the natural um flow of coins i know that that's probably impossible to you know firmly say but kind of curious what your thoughts are on that dynamic well they're not hitting the spot market but those bitcoins are still fulfilling demand for bitcoin so i don't see that that's a, a huge deal it's just you know skipping a step to fulfill demand somewhere else um but what it could do is lead to different financialized products um i, I don't know exactly what the miners are doing with these bitcoins if they're not selling them but um perhaps they could start to be the basis of financial products and we could see a financialization uh, happen of some sort but uh i, I don't think that it's it means that they're not hitting they're, they're not fulfilling demand. They're just not hitting the spot market, which could decrease sell pressure. And one thing that we have talked about, uh, we talked about with Dylan and we talked about with other people, I'm sure, is the number of coins on exchanges continues to go down. But um, I, I expect that to actually continue. Um, the, the value, the dollar value on exchanges will probably stay fairly constant but the number of Bitcoins on exchanges will go down as more and more Bitcoin goes into other products. So there is going to be, you know, it has to find its way into <laughs> banks' wallets, right? The um, Citigroup and uh, JP Morgan, I mean, they have to hold Bitcoin at some point and uh, all, any, all large financial entities are going to hold Bitcoin. So these Bitcoins are going to make their way off of exchanges and on into uh, long-term a financial storage. So I think that's that's going to be coming. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like people will criticize those Glassnode charts saying like, oh, well, they're leaving exchanges and going straight into Coinbase custody. So like it, it's not a good uh, measure of uh, people taking self-custody and, you know, uh, you know, self-ownership of their keys. But on the flip side, I think it's a really good example of um like bitcoin is perfect collateral and it's either being used as a treasury asset in a way that com companies are comfortable with or it is you know going into you know future products that are being built um but with that being said like the amount that is on that is available for trading on these exchanges you know is going down and trending down and you know obviously that kind of shows that bitcoin is more than just a you know ticker to trade right you know i feel like bitcoin has been evolving and a lot of times these traders like shit coins now because it's just a bounty of tickers to trade it's just a bunch of letters on the screen um and bitcoin is more than that and that's why it's being pulled off and leveraged in in other ways i got a question for you what do you think about uh the kind of uh conspiracy theory of the gold futures market manipulating the price and now that we're seeing the ETF that's trading in futures, is Bitcoin futures going to be used to manipulate Bitcoin? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, first of all, it is disingenuous to compare Bitcoin to gold. I think the digital gold meme um, kind of leads people to just think, oh, Bitcoin just gold on the internet. But the, the whole point is that gold had physical characteristics that led it to be non-compatible with an internet globalized world. So 
once, in my opinion, what killed gold was not really central bank centralization, although that was bad. It was actually the internet. I think as soon as we went on the internet, fiat had a monopoly on money because it was the only form of money that could be on the internet. Um, and Bitcoin changes that. And Bitcoin has a lot of characteristics that make it much, much better than gold. And it solves a lot of gold's issues that lead to it to become centralized. So I just don't think that if, if Bitcoin has an Achilles heel, it's not the same one as gold. So, and I'm, I don't necessarily know enough to say that, hey, gold's fate was the ETFs. People could say gold's fate was inflation, too. Um, there's a lot of things that went into gold's fate. It's physical nature, the centralization, World War II, um, all of that kind of stuff. It's lack of divisibility, which it, like left an opening for silver the entire time right and left the opening for for fiat to enter in so i think gold had a lot of issues that made it incompatible to scale to a you know internet world i don't think that that's a super uh controversial thing to say and bitcoin doesn't have any of those issues so i just don't think if bitcoin has an achilles heel it's not the same one as gold uh so and i don't even know if, uh, if the etf was or the futures were gold's real achilles heel i think it has a lot of issues yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that this futures ETF is very hard to corner the market, which has happened in like, say, silver. It's not, I, technically never happened in gold that we know of, but it, it has happened in silver. But I don't think it would uh, affect Bitcoin because Bitcoin has the possibility of doubling in price within a matter of a week, right? And that would just squeeze all of the shorts if there are any sort of naked shorts out there. Uh, in the futures market on Bitcoin, you are going to have a very bad day because Bitcoin can double very quickly where gold isn't going to go to 3000 overnight, right? But Bitcoin could literally go 10% a day for multiple days and just squeeze all those shorts. So I don't think that there is uh, as easy a route to manipulate Bitcoin. Now in the future, say when Bitcoin uh, reaches close to its you know ultimate value, whatever that is, I think of course, Bitcoin is going to go up, is going to go up forever, but not at these levels, right? It might go up um, three to five percent a year or something like that. So at that time, it will be open to more manipulation. But by then, Bitcoin has already swallowed the world, and you know people won't necessarily want to manipulate it. I mean, it'll also be a lot harder to manipulate it because all yeah. markets are made in Bitcoin, right? I would yeah. say that. Again, like, okay, sure, Bitcoin's price action right now is very dangerous for uh, malicious market actors. Um, and we see that all the time and celebrate, you know, fucking over the shorts and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, I think Bitcoin's digital nature is the real reason why, you know, at least manipulation via financialization and other secondary products will be much, much less of a factor. Uh, the fact that you can take custody digitally and an individual person, even a child, could custody large amounts of Bitcoin. It does not take an enormous amount of resources to maintain and hold that Bitcoin and it can hide in a crowd. I think that that fact um, will set up a very different market dynamic and make it very hard for, you know, derivative products to necessarily uh, wreck Bitcoin. And, you know, I think you've talked about this before is like, in Bitcoin, there will be free banking. There's going to be rehypothecation in that, and that's fine. What What's not fine is uh, the money being corrupted to the point where those institutions can't fail if they fuck up. 
So I think like, you know, people will have different products. Some of those products will be hugely successful. Some of them will pose a danger to Bitcoin and, you know, they'll get wrecked because they, you know, over leverage themselves or whatever. So um, I don't know. That's over. That's kind of like a, a big picture view. Uh, I, you know, not to say that Bitcoin is indestructible, but I just don't think that the gold manipulation is going to be the way that Bitcoin gets manipulated. Yeah. And uh, Bitcoin is, you know, we talk about permissionless innovation. So there's for every product that's um, offered by a private company, like a PayPal, there's going to be a strike that builds on a permissionless protocol. So uh, Bitcoin offers that permissionlessness and the ability to check the centralized power by using something else. So it's, it's a beautiful system the way it aligns the incentives. Bitcoiners, I am so excited to tell you about the Bitcoin 2022 conference. You guys, Bitcoin 2021 was absolutely a smash hit success. It was over 13,000 Bitcoiners coming together, breaking the barriers on who can come together and celebrate freedom, celebrate Bitcoin, and the energy was absolutely electric. Unfortunately, it was just oversubscribed. There's just people flowing out everywhere. And this year we are learning, we are making the conference bigger and better. We are moving over to the Miami Beach Convention Center, and we are going to be throwing a massive four-day festival for Bitcoin, celebrating Bitcoin, bringing together the greatest minds in Bitcoin and the greatest businesses in Bitcoin. And lastly, the culture of Bitcoin all together. We have a four-day extravaganza planned for you guys for Bitcoin 2022. Uh, day one is going to be industry day. It is a day where you can buy a special ticket in order to uh, just mingle and make business deals happen. Day two and three is going to be a full-blown Bitcoin conference. This is our main conference. This is going to be on April 7th and 8th. And then lastly, we have the Sound Music Festival day four. Imagine going to Coachella. But for Bitcoin, there's going to be very few talks. It's going to be all about the culture of Bitcoin. It's going to be all about hanging with your fellow plebs. It is going to be an absolutely amazing time. There's going to be Bitcoin musicians, Bitcoin artists, and all your favorite Bitcoiners and just an amazing environment to party and just see it all, soak it all in, and to get people to realize that a Bitcoin world, a world filled with Bitcoin people doing Bitcoin things is the world that they want to live in. That's what Bitcoin 2022 is all about. That is what the Bitcoin conference is all about. That's what Bitcoin magazine is all about. So it is going to be a celebration of Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners, and this amazing movement that is going to make the world a better place. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Learn more about the Bitcoin conference. Learn more about all the amazing things that are happening in Miami around the Bitcoin conference and buy your tickets. And guess what? If you buy your bit tickets with Bitcoin, you save $100 on all the tickets and $1,000 on the whale pass. So if you want the VIP pass, the, the big kahuna, if you buy with Bitcoin, you save $1,000. That's a lot of stats. So go and do it right now today. Don't wait. Prices are only going up. This is going to be a can't miss event. What else we got today? Anything? Do we want to talk about mining at all? Um, or hash rate mining? has pretty much recovered from, uh, yes. from the China ban. I don't know how much of that is Chinese equipment getting relocated and how much of that is like new hash rate that was already being shipped. 
Um, Cause you know, there's a ton of contracts that got signed like December of 19 that were just getting fulfilled kind of the end of 2020 uh, and, you know, into this year. So, um, you know, I don't know what percentage, you know, where, where this hash rate is coming from and how much unaccounted hash rate is still offline. I think that's a, a very interesting thing to kind of look into, but um, you know, Bitcoin works like, and it's, it was awesome to see, like, you've been theorizing about what happens when hash rate comes off and like the incentives and a lot of other, you know, Bitcoin economists have been talking about this and it's awesome to see it actually happen. And also kind of like put the China can ban Bitcoin story to bed for real. Like that, that story, it might get brought up again, but you know, there's no grounds for it now. Like the hash rate isn't even in China from what we, we can analyze. Yeah. Not only that China can't ban Bitcoin, but nobody can ban Bitcoin because, you know, if China can't do it and they're the second largest economy with this whole totalitarian state and, you know, all of these, uh, the uh, surveillance systems that they have and all the power they have on the internet and they can't even ban Bitcoin, uh, no other country is going to be even close to being able to ban it. So I think this, yeah, it's a huge vote of confidence. Now, I don't, I don't have any specific insight on where these miners are in the process of moving. I, I mean, a, several months ago, um, I was told that, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to build this, the new shelf space for the new miners to move into. So yes, the miners might be sitting in the United States or they might be sitting in Kazakhstan or wherever, but they just don't have the shelf space to put them anywhere. And it takes time to build these new places. So as these places get built out, uh, we will see it slowly coming back online like like we've seen and uh, that that's all that I would have to say about that it's it's we knew that this was coming we talked about it here on the show that uh, it would take till about the end of the year to break even on this hash rate and it seems like it's happened before that so um, not a big surprise to us Bitcoin works um, I'm curious to see you know, as price continues to moon and as supply chains continue to be absolutely wrecked, what that's going to do. Like, I think if you have a machine right now, you are going to be making bank. I think at like all modern machines S 17 and above, and like, I don't know the name of the ant miners, but all of those are profitable, like in almost any price point, almost any electricity cost at this point. So if, well, someone, if new hash rate is not coming on, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of profitable machine owners for a long time. Um, you know, obviously price is going to come down as we're expecting at some point, but still um, the supply constraints are going to make miners very, very uh, lucrative, I think, in the short term. You know, someone talking on one of your guys' uh, Twitter spaces, some miner, and he was saying that uh, he personally is mining like 20, it's like 75% off. So he can mine Bitcoin for only 25% of the price of Bitcoin. And yeah, and he probably has the best top of the line machines, but I can see people with not top of the line machines, you know, still being able to mine Bitcoin for half of what it costs to go out and buy Bitcoin. So yeah, it's, it's a, a growing industry. And what the US now is the leader, the right, the hash rate leader. And do you see that uh, picking up pace? Do you see that having any other competition coming out like Central Asia or Russia or anything like that? I mean, to be honest, as an American and as a Bitcoiner, I really hope so. Because 
I have to share Matt Odell's concerns here. The U.S. is the land of KYC. So I don't want the U.S., you know, like, yeah, it wasn't comfortable about China, you know, having such a mass, uh, massive amount of, uh, of hash rate there. But I'm not exactly super comfortable with the U.S. either. Um, you know, I, I, I see the U.S. government as it is today for the next three years, at least, uh, having a like crackdown and comply mentality towards everything, but not that definitely includes any sort of crypto asset uh infrastructure provider or service so like i don't like the us having a ton of hash rate as compared to the rest of the world and i hope that you know more wild wild west countries have more hash rate too like eastern europe russia would love to see um massive uh mining operations in south america and central america uh they present a massive opportunity to build out energy infrastructure in africa so you know, I, I hope the whole world mines and I hope that some governments can get get their shit together enough to start attracting some miners, um, you know, before they all just flock to Texas and the U.S. Well, yeah, I mean, um, and miners will move if it is financially feasible for them to do that. So um, as China as this China situation uh, demonstrates, so I'm not worried about it. I think that miners will move if they need to move and. That's just how it is. But I think it is interesting, too, that mining is coming to the U.S. And if you look at it from the perspective, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show before, but uh, earlier I said that, you know, the ECB seems to be really pushing for the CBDCs. And Powell is kind of stiff arming the CBDCs. And also the U.S. is stiff arming uh, any sort of European alliance in favor of the AUKUS. So is this a situation where the ECB is going to be pushing for a CBDC world and the US is going to be pushing for a Bitcoin world? Oh yeah, we did talk about that on the show here with uh, log scale, with some of the stuff that log scale has said. So um, yeah, I think this this would fit nicely into uh, the US being the leader in Bitcoin. We're the leader in Bitcoin um, with the mining. Maybe we can be leading in Bitcoin with the central bank holding Bitcoin, you know, the leader, this isn't the first ETF, but it will definitely be the biggest ETF in the world. No, 100%. And like, I, I agree, like the US is well in position to like, quote unquote, be the leader, right? But they're also the leader in KYC and compliance and enforcement. Um, and I just don't like that. So I don't know what to say. Uh, I, you know, I, I just don't want there to be a de-anonymizing you know regulatory factor to you know also kind of be in position to uh you know have a lot of powerful central third parties in their jurisdiction right so i don't know i like decentralization i like choice but you're you know i think you're completely right with all these trends in the analysis in general well bitcoin like we just talked about um that there is this it's like a pendulum, right? So right now the most credit worthy borrower is the United States government uh, are all these governments in these different countries. And so the, the uh, government tends to grow in power during a credit-based money. So a switch to Bitcoin would po potend to lower KYC and lower government overreach. So uh, I, I don't see, I honestly don't see a government being able to sustain that type of KYC and that kind of interference 
if we go to a Bitcoin world. So it's kind of like the Trojan horse, you know, let the let Bitcoin in to fight against these geopolitical rivals and Bitcoin will help the people no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, and I think you would agree with this, is that it's not even like the U.S. letting Bitcoin in. It's the fact that U.S. has the most freedom and the most liberty and choice, and therefore Bitcoin inevitably nestles here because it's hosp more hospitable, and then therefore it's now in. So like, I don't think the government, I don't think the central bank, I don't think any of these politicians are going to do anything to help us. They're just going to get in the way. But just the fact that at least in the U.S., there's some rule of law and there's some choice, you know, that creates an avenue for Bitcoin to leak in. Agreed. I think that might be a good place to wrap it up for this week. That's all I have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this was a good long rip. We had we hashed out a lot of stuff. So uh, Bitcoiners out there, let us know what you think. I love these central bank update episodes. And I think that, you know, FedWatch is the only still show still out there that is doing this kind of stuff in the context of Bitcoin. Go check out Ansel's most recent interview, or sorry, uh, article talking about the interest rate fallacy on Bitcoin Magazine. That one should be in the show notes. Go check out all of the great work that we're doing on uh, our your podcast player as well as YouTube. Uh, follow me at ck underscore snarks. Go follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. And yeah, everything we're doing is on Bitcoin Magazine. So check that out. Peace.